Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In today's episode, Will and Ollie chat with the Honourable George Brandis Casey, former Senator for Queensland, Attorney General for Australia and High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, and newly appointed Professor of National Security, Policy and Law at the Australian National University. The conversation begins in that area, as they discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the risk of war with China, the decline of the US on the world stage, and the balancing act between national security and civil liberties. They then move on to discussing politics more generally, touching topics like George's positions on freedom of speech and marriage equality, the influence of postmodernism on both the political left and right, Brexit, the tension or otherwise between liberalism and conservatism, and the value of studying a generalist humanities degree like PPE. This discussion took place as a follow-up after our statecraft winter lecture, at which George shared some reflections on his time in politics and diplomacy. You don't have to listen to that lecture in order to understand what's going on in this episode, but I do recommend checking it out. You can listen to an audio recording of George's lecture in episode four. We're really grateful to Mr. Rannis for engaging with us for both lecture and this podcast discussion. It's fantastic to be able to engage with someone who's actually been on the world stage, engaged in real life politics and diplomacy, and getting their thoughts on what's happening in the world. One more thing before I let you go. I'm really excited to announce that this year's print issue of Statecraft magazine, Pillar Talk's sister publication, is published and available to purchase now. This fifth issue of Statecraft, which has the title Realignment, is our longest yet, and it's packed full of thought-provoking writing from PPE students, including myself, Will and Ollie. It features articles on many of the topics discussed in this podcast, including the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Australia's relationships with China and the US as well as stunning illustrations and, for the first time, three print-exclusive articles that you won't find online. I'm really proud of how this magazine turned out. If you like the kind of conversations we have here at Pillar Talk, you'll love Statecraft. To get your hands on a copy for just $15, check out the link in the episode description. And without further ado, I give you the Honourable George Brandis in conversation with Will and Ollie. Welcome to Pillar Talk. We're here with Oliver and myself, William Spat, and we're here today with the Honourable Professor George Brandis, QC. Um, welcome to Pill Talk, George Brandis, and I guess, could you give us a brief rundown of um, who you are, what appointments you've had, and where you stand now, and what your profession is now? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Will and Oliver. Um, So I um, am an alumnus of of UQ, of the politics department and the law school, and I have pursued a career basically in law and politics, and they've sort of overlapped and intertwined throughout my career. So originally I was a barrister, I practiced at the commercial bar for about 15 years when I was young, Um, and then in 2000, I became a Liberal Senator for Queensland. I'd always been involved um, in the um, Liberal Party on the voluntary side. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I was the State President of the Young Liberals. And uh, I decided uh, when an opportunity arose to become a professional politician. So I served in the Senate for 18 years. Um, 
and uh, during that time I was a minister in three governments, in the Howard government, um, in the Abbott government and in the Turnbull government. Uh, and the main jobs I had at the sort of, sort of you know, the, 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 the zenith as it were of my uh, political career were as Attorney General and also as Leader of the Government in the Senate. Um, I retired uh, at the beginning of 2018 um, and I was offered by Mr Turnbull uh, the opportunity to be the High Commissioner uh, to the United Kingdom, which is something that I'd always thought would be a wonderful sort of job to have, frankly. I am a, 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 an ardent Anglophile and I did my postgraduate um, degree at Oxford, in fact, in, in law. So I, I took that opportunity and uh, I've only recently come back from four years, four extraordinarily eventful and, and full years in London. Mm. Um, and um, when I came back, unexpectedly, I was uh, asked if, if I was being interested in joining the National Security College at the Australian National University. Uh, and given that uh, as the Attorney General and then in a different, from a different vantage point, I guess in the last four years, national security is you know, what I've been doing for the best part of the last decade. It did seem a good segue. Mm. So I've uh, accepted this chair uh, in national security at the ANU, which is what I do now. You mentioned there about national security, and obviously one of the big kind of developments, at least in recent times, regarding national security has been AUKUS. Mm. Um, obviously, considering roles High Commissioner to in the United Kingdom and the role of the UK and Australia in AUKUS. Um, what are your own kind of personal views, say, on this particular arrangement? Do you see it as a say very big positive step for Australia that is a kind of going to secure our national um, security for the next foreseeable future? Or well, I think AUKUS is a big deal. Um, you know, I should say I was involved in that, of course, as the High Commissioner in the um, uh, in the um, development of the idea uh, up to the time of the announcement last September or thereabouts. Um, I think it's very important that like-minded countries which have trusting relationships and common interests and shared values cooperate even more than we do at the moment. Now, uh, at its inception, um, the first major project of AUKUS was to enable Australia to acquire uh, a nuclear a power capability so that we could have nuclear-powered submarines, not nuclear uh, whip, whip, armed submarines, but nuclear-powered submarines because, and I'll go into this in a moment, um, and, but that required the Americans being willing to share their technology with Australia. Now, that was a very unusual thing for them to do. They've only ever done that once before, and that was in 1958, when they decided to share their nuclear technology with the United Kingdom. And that's why the UK has a nuclear um, um, submarine fleet. Um, they decided that they would share their technology with Australia. And at the moment, the Australian government has got a very big decision to make whether it adopts um, as its prime contractor to build the vessel, uh, the American model, the next generation of what is called the Virginia class submarine, 
or a British boat, which would be the next generation of what is um, called the astute class of submarine, which the Royal Navy has. And that's a decision that uh, will have to be given a lot of very careful thought, no doubt is. But the principle of the three nations collaborating to enable Australia to, to acquire this capability is a very big deal. It's very important to stress, though, that this is just the first project. AUKUS is an open-ended capability sharing and, and development um, pact. So there are other areas that are a little less tangible than a submarine, like hypersonics, like quantum computing, like artificial intelligence, like what we do with, in space together, um, which are all part of the vision of the three, three trusted allies interoperating and, and, uh, and um, developing this technology together. Do you, was the AUKUS, was AUKUS modelled off NATO? No. No, and that's not what it is. I mean, NATO is a defence pact. Yeah. So, and, and NATO, I mean, the, the, the closer, uh, I mean, the, the, NATO has a mutual defence obligation, mm -hmm. as ANZUS does, for instance. Mm -hmm. AUKUS is not a defence pact. AUKUS is a capability development and... Um, and and technology sharing pact, right? So quite a stark difference. So it's rather it's, conceptually, it's quite a different thing. Okay, it's about the three nations working even more closely than we've done before in the development of capability. So this was done in the context of, um, I guess, uh, rising superpower in the Pacific, which is China. How should Australia navigate the recent, um, um, I guess, infringements on Taiwan and it's uh, China's growing uh, belligerence of Taiwanese independence? How do you think Australia should go about? Well, we need to do everything we can to persuade President Xi and um, the Chinese leadership not to invade Taiwan. It's as simple as that. Um, the great task for diplomacy in the Pacific, for Australia, for the United States, for Japan and South Korea, for, uh, for all of us, is to raise the cost of an invasion of Taiwan to a point at which President Xi decides that he's not prepared to do it. Mm. Um, and uh, whether that uh, is going to be the outcome or not, I'm not going to make a prediction. Um, there is certainly, as the Chinese ambassador's speech to the National Press Club several days ago made chillingly clear, that is an option that China has absolutely put on the table. Um, but um, we must ensure that do what we can diplomatically and militarily and strategically and economically and in all the other um, ways that we can influence Chinese thinking, we must persuade uh, the Chinese not to do this. That, uh, that uh, what, what Putin essayed in uh, Ukraine has been a disaster for Putin and we need to persuade President Xi that to attack Taiwan would be a disaster for China. 
You make a kind of a form of comparison there between kind of Russian actions in Ukraine and then kind of looking at Chinese actions in, in Taiwan. In, in that context, then, how important is it that either Putin essentially loses the war in, in Ukraine or um, kind of is made to go at such a slow, fyric victory that it isn't seen as a success? Is that essential then in order to kind of show the, the Chinese that the Western nations can kind of rally around and an and ally and ensure that those countries can't kind of bully them around in that way? Or? Well, there's a lot of, 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 of parts to the answer to that question, Oliver. And first, let me say that the comparison between Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's threats to Taiwan are different in many ways. For a start, um, we, we have a one-China policy. We accept um, that the, there is one government of the People's Republic of China, and that is the Beijing government. We acknowledge their claim to Taiwan, but we uphold the status quo. And it's uh, that holding those three propositions simultaneously um, is quite difficult, but that's where we are. I mean, there, there are some who say that the one-China policy is dead, that de facto we have acknowledged and, and, and America has acknowledged Taiwan to be a sovereign government. And that's a debate that international relations scholars might, and international lawyers might have. But nevertheless, formally, um, the international legal character of Ukraine is quite different from the international legal personality of Taiwan. That's the first point. The second point is that as a military exercise, it is much. It would be much harder to invade Taiwan than it has been to invade Ukraine. Ukraine is basically a plain. It's a very flat country. Um, it is has a land border with Russia. Um, the tanks just rolled in. Taiwan is an extremely mountainous and rugged country. Uh, which is protected, of course, by the Taiwan Strait. So the the simple the sheer military logistics of a, of an invasion by China of Taiwan will be several orders of magnitude greater than what Putin faced uh, in Ukraine. Um, now, that being said, there is nevertheless a kind of broad narrative, meta-narrative here, though, isn't there? And that is that the West must stand up for the, the, the international rules-based order, the global rule of law, uh, and which, among other things, prohibits unprovoked invasions of other countries. You talked about... You stated that the West should increase the costs of Xi invading Taiwan. How do you think... We should go about that. Well, I think what we what Xi needs to know is that um, an attempt to invade Taiwan would be a massively costly exercise to China. Um, now, President Biden has now said three times that America would militarily defend Taiwan. That's another big difference with Ukraine because Biden made it perfectly clear 
in advance of the invasion on the 24th of February that America would not militarily in a boots on the ground sense or even an, a, a, a denial of, of, of airspace sense um, militarily defend Ukraine. What they would do is they would provide equipment, military equipment and training, but military equipment in particular. Now, he hasn't said that about Taiwan. He has said three times America would defend Taiwan militarily three times. That has been walked back by his senior officials who want to maintain what the Americans call strategic ambiguity. But it seems to me, and I had this debate with Hugh White on a Q&A program a few weeks ago, it seems to me that the one thing that is most likely to give a green light to Xi in deciding that he will invade is the knowledge that America won't defend Taiwan. Right. So I feel as though you can't talk about the rise of China without talking about, in some sense, what feels like the decline of the USA. How should Australia navigate this decline, if you do think there is a decline? Well, I, I, I'm hesitant to... I mean, the, the rise of China is obviously one of the, you know, the great geopolitical fact of our time, and that's going to continue. But I'm a little hesitant about the declinist narrative. I mean, the United States is still the largest economy in the world. It still has the biggest military uh, in, the, in the world. Um, the uh, Indo-Pacific fleet based in Honolulu is the most important navy in the Pacific, although China is acquiring at an accelerating rate um, uh, naval capability as well. So I, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily adopt the declinist narrative, but I do think that la largely for domestic political reasons, there has been. The, 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 the prestige and, the, shall we say, the moral authority of the United States has been diminished in recent years. Not just, by the way, because of President Trump. Now, you know, Trump was, um, didn't do anything good for America's moral authority in the world, of course. Um, but Biden has been a weak president. Nobody expects him to run again. He's got to say he'll run again because the moment he says he won't, he's a dead duck. He's a he's a lame duck. So, but the fact that he says that he was running again is irrelevant. He, nobody expects that. Obama, who was obviously a, a a mega charismatic figure and historically significant because of of the fact that he was the first African American president, and also had some conspicuous domestic successes was a weak president when it came to foreign policy. He walked away from his own red lines, especially in Syria. He largely left vacated the Middle East and particularly the, the, the Syrian civil war uh, to Putin um, and Erdogan. Um, and uh, America was not influential uh, and didn't get its way uh, in, in, in that theater during Obama's presidency. Obama's predecessor, Bush, made what most people think was a catastrophic error with the invasion of Iraq. Uh, going back before that, Bill Clinton was a lotus-eating president who never really took advantage of the 
the um, uh, virtual strategic monopoly that had, the United States had in the early after the early 1990s. So there has been, in my view, a multi-generational now um, poor performance for different reasons uh, by American presidents. That is a function in part of whom the Americans have chosen to be president. And ask yourself the question, let us say, as about 99.9% .9 of people expected in 2016, Hillary Clinton had been elected president of the United States, not Donald Trump. I think, I think A, American policy would have been firmer and more predictable and more reliable, certainly less erratic. And B, she probably would have been re-elected in 2020 and be, been president today. So my point is that there is nothing inevitable about American decline, but the American electoral and political system has, in this generation, thrown up a succession of pretty weak leaders when it comes, weak or leaders or leaders who made very serious errors when it comes to foreign international relations and foreign policy. Who is the last president that you think got it right on foreign policy? Then? I think the most impressive American period in foreign policy was the period of Reagan and the first President Bush. Mm. And I think it's... You don't hear much about Bush 41, but uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was president for only one term after Reagan. But, I mean, he was the person who managed the very, very tricky situation uh, arising after the fall of Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism. And I think it is one of the great shames of, of modern history that he didn't get a second term in 1992 because mm -hmm. he was, in my view, one of the great statesmen of um, modern American history yeah. and he was a hugely successful president in foreign policy, as was Reagan. Mm. So it was a kind of classic adage that foreign policy isn't what wins elections. Yeah, well, though, you know, it sometimes loses elections, as, as the Vietnam era showed. Mm. Yeah, just... So changing tact um, slightly from this kind of, say, foreign policy, national security focus. You mentioned, because I say for people who might be listening to this um, podcast later, uh, say um, George was very uh, kind to give us our uh, this semester's kind of statecraft lecture um, and talking about uh, his reflections on politics and diplomacy. And in that, when you were talking about practical politics, you did mention some kind of thinkers, such as, say, Michael, Michael Oakeshott, um, Machiavelli in there um, and I was just interested to see when you kind of in the practical application of politics in government roles what kind of role does that political kind of philosophy or kind of maybe quite high level political thinking how does that actually work to influence your kind of political practice when you're actually kind of at the coalface in my case quite a lot more than you might think actually I think in typically not very much for most Ministers, but I'd been sort of studied political philosophy, and you know I used to lecture in, in the law school in jurisprudence for years. So, I mean, I was much. It was much more front of mind for me than it was for most of my colleagues, at least. And in the national security space, when I was Attorney General, I often had to 
make judgments about whether or not to go along with suggestions that various national security legislation should be expanded, basically, to expand the powers, for example, of ASIO, uh, which would impinge on the, the rights and liberty of the citizens. Now, I can think of some of the people who sat around the cabinet table with me who, had they been in my job at that time, would have said to the Director-General of ASIO, whatever you want. It helps in the war against terrorism, whatever you want. I didn't do that. I wanted to be persuaded, A, that it was necessary, and B, that it wasn't overreach. I usually was persuaded, by the way, that it was necessary and wasn't overreach. But I consciously did try to maintain a, 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 an added... My, my default position was we don't expel, expand the powers of the state unless there is a powerful reason to do so. In your valedictory speech, um, you claim that Australia's uh, balancing out between national security and civil liberties was a success. What, what do you think um, contributed to Australia's uh, success in that balancing act? Well, I think, it, well, I, I mean, I was actually quoting an editorial from the Korea Mail, which made that observation. Um, I think, well, we have not had a mass casualty terrorist episode in Australia. We're one of the few Western democracies, by the way, that hasn't had one. Mm. Uh, the, the, the worst was the Lent Cafe siege. Uh, but we haven't had an event like the New Zealanders had. We haven't had an event like the Brits have had a couple of times. We haven't had an event like the French have had, the Canadians have had, the United States has had. Um, that's because the agencies, particularly ASIO, but also the Australian Federal Police and State Police, do a very, very good job. And their capacity to um, um, surveil troublesome people, um, it has been a very important part of their success in interdicting, on occasions, um, uh, the preparation for terrorist acts. So I think on the national security side, and you, know, you can never be sure in this business, of course, but um, that is some comfort that we've got the national security side of the balance right. Um, from the civil liberties point of view, um, I can only repeat that um, we designed these laws, and I had a terrific um, interlocutor um, in the then Director General of ASIO, Duncan Lewis, who is now, like me, a professor at the National Security College. Um, so, um, and he understood that. I mean, he, he also understood that if the public thinks that there's a power grab going on by, you know, the secret state, they will lose confidence um, that the intelligence community are doing the right thing by the country, that... that um, there, there'll always be people on the left who are who have a paranoia about intelligence agencies. Uh, but the thing about intelligence agencies is it's so important to maintain public confidence in them because they can never really tell you what they do. Mm. I mean, ex hypothesis, their secret, their their work has to be secret. So, giving the public that level of assurance that neither the agency nor the polit its political masters um, are using terrorism 
or the, the fear of terrorism as an excuse for a power grab um, is important. And I think because, if I may say so, when I was in charge of the agency at a ministerial level at least, I was known to be a sort of John Stuart Mill observant smaller liberal who didn't believe in um, massively expanding the power of the state. That gave people a lot of confidence that I wasn't going to, um, uh, that, that there wouldn't be a, a gratuitous grab for power. So it seems as though that the burden of proof to justify such expansion was on those pursuing national security, not on those pursuing civil liberty. I think the burden of proof is always on those who want to expand the power of the state to demonstrate why that is necessary. Now, often, in most cases, in fact, certainly in the national security sphere, that burden of proof is um, reasonably easily discharged. Mm. But nevertheless, you, but you start from the proposition in my view, because philosophically I'm a classical liberal, um, that you don't expand the power of the state unless there is a good reason to do so. Another area, um, talking about kind of the role of the state in people's lives and whatnot, and also again, calling back to something you mentioned in your lecture, was talking about kind of the utility of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Um, do you believe, say, in Australia, as it stands with something like 18C is still a very much an existent um, fact of law, that freedom of speech is adequately protected in Australia, um, maybe in comparison to other countries or whatnot? Well, we don't have the constitutional protections, for example, that some countries have, but that's a... Protections, I put in scare quotes, because sometimes those um, Bill of Rights-type protections are not as... Um, liberal as people like to think they might be. Um, I do think that we have some um, statutes of which Section 18 of the Racial Discrimination Act is one that um, don't express the appropriate borderline between what conduct that ought to be proscribed and conduct that ought not to be. Um, but the Section 18C debate, was it became totemic for a lot of other things, mm. which was the reason, one of the reasons um, the, the reform failed. Um, what, though, I think is more worrying is a, a cultural, culture of intolerance to freedom of speech. So I'm not now talking about statutory provisions like Section 18C, I'm talking about an attitude that, particularly driven by um, social media now, that shames people uh, or, or, or creates a, a Twitter storm around people if they say something that other people don't like. Well, you know, that's not the way free societies work. Um, people we must maintain, in my view, the civility of being, uh, as a, a society, of being able to accept that every citizen is entitled to their opinions and unless they engage in conduct which is actually abusive or intimidatory or threatening, 
is entitled to express their opinions. Now, uh, it, that sounds to, to, to somebody of my generation so, such a commonplace proposition, but it's being challenged. For example, after the um, 2019 British election, there was a new Labour Member of Parliament elected in the United Kingdom. I forget her name, but she happened to be the youngest person in the House of Commons after 2019. And in her maiden speech, you're not meant to say maiden speech, but you know, in her first speech, she said, debate is not a neutral act because debate provides a platform in which the privileged or the powerful uh, can oppress those who are not privileged and not powerful. In other words, this new member of parliament used her first speech in the House of Commons to attack the very concept of debate, of parliamentary debate, as being something bad and evil. Now, that attitude has no place in a free, in a free society, but it is tolerated increasingly, I think. Do you think that things like quote-unquote cancel culture have gotten worse or do you think it's just taken another form? Well, I don't... I mean, it's hard to judge, isn't it? Um, I think cancel culture is an absolutely evil... uh, evil in so many ways, not only for the... um, because it's an affront to a free society, but also, by the way because it's a celebration of ignorance. And cancel culture is the, is the equivalent of book burning. If you say somebody whose opinions uh, you don't like should be shouted down and not be allowed to be heard, that is exactly the same as saying their books should be burned in a public square, which is what the Nazis did, by the way. But you hear people on the left um, in Australia saying that today. You talked about the postmodern right in your valedictory speech as well, in quite a disparaging way. Um, What did you mean by the postmodern right, and what threat do you reckon it poses? Well, I adopted a phrase that uh, I had picked up from my friend Scott Ryan, who was then the President of the Senate, and is one of the few real intellectuals in Australian politics, sadly, now retired. And he had introduced me to this phrase, right-wing postmodernism. Postmodernism is a, is a set of attitudes and beliefs that is usually associated with the left and the kind of attitudes that I just described. But the idea of right-wing postmodernism is a bit like Trumpist, pop, Trumpian populist, populism. It's obviously not liberalism, but it's not conservatism either. I mean, people on the right who want to tear down institutions like, for instance, the separation of powers, the independence of the judiciary, the rule of law, and invest untrammeled policing powers in the state in the name of public order. Obviously, they're not liberals, but they're not conservatives, are they? Because Mm. conservatives don't believe in that. Conservatives believe in protecting institutions and I think you know the 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 tension that used to exist in center right politics in Australia between liberals and conservatives about which 
I've been just reading John Howard's new book and he writes about this um, in the book that he's just published, which is certainly worth reading. I think that's been overtaken. I think the Liberals and Conservatives are each other's allies now. Uh, and what they are allies against is an unthinking authoritarianism of both the right and the left that both attacks freedoms but also attacks the institutions that protect freedoms. You mentioned, I would say, kind of that, that idea coming through in former, say, Trumpian um, populism. Is it apparent in Australia, maybe not to the same degree as, um, as it is in America, but say within Parliament or within the Senate or whatnot, is that idea of these kind of postmodern right or postmodern left that want to essentially check, break down the institutions and have those set of views you were talking about, is that a major force in Australian politics or a growing force in Australian politics or is it still largely I, an American phenomenon? Well, um, allowing for the fact that I haven't been in the United States in the last five years, but so I'm observing from a distance, but I don't think that uh, we are anything near the position that we have in uh, in uh, in the United States. I mean, th- those people who were responsible for the insurrection in January of last year, how can you describe them as conservatives? You can't. They were... It seems like they have a deep disrespect towards... Well, they, they, they were anarchists. Hmm. And, it, I mean, in... I mean, one of the differences, I think, that not that the anarchist population in Australia is very large, mercifully, <laughs> but, I mean, the, the extreme suspicion of government and institutions, the anarchic, the anarchist point of view, gets a lot more play on the American right than it's ever got in Australia. And now, a brief word from our platinum sponsor, KPMG. KPMG provide a range of professional services for business, non-profits and government, including consulting on the design and implementation of key government policies. They offer two programs that might interest you, their 12-month graduate program and their four to eight week vacation program for students in their penultimate year. Both are fantastic opportunities for anyone interested in consulting or in building their skills at solving complex policy problems. For more information, check out this episode's description or reach out to the UQPPE Society and we can put you in touch with one of our contacts at KPMG. Now, back to our chat with George Brandis. What is the best critique of classical liberalism that you have read? And was there ever a point in your life where you started to doubt the tenets of classical liberalism? Well, the, uh, the short answer to the second part of your question is no. Mm. Um, but what I have done, and my, if it's not too pretentious a, a, a phrase, my intellectual journey, mm. is become much more appreciative of the wisdom uh, of conservative writers. And, you know, I'm talking about, I mean people like Michael Oakeshott, and also much more aware that this liberalism versus conservatism um, dispute, at least between classical liberalism and conservatism, is a bit of a false antithesis. As I said a moment ago, I think that the the institutions that we have in Australia are largely liberal institutions. They're not Mm. socialist institutions, although we have a, a, a very healthy welfare state, but they're not socialist institutions. And the... Uh, the, there is a, a very, very, there's usually a very close alignment between 
what liberals want and what classical liberals want and what conservatives want, although they come at it a, a, a common conclusion from different premises. You mentioned there, you talk about, say, conservative writers, say, Michael Oakeshott being one you name, another one, of course, seeing kind of being Roger Scruton. Yes. Um, obviously, now with Oakeshott's been, um, he died in 1990, um, Scruton passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Where do you see kind of the kind of intellectual, um, kind of top intellectual writers of conservatism still currently operating? The kind of, in the modern age, who are the kind of intellectual beacons of conservatism, or is there not really a writer of that? I'm not aware of a writer of, um, uh, of quite that stature, though that may be because I've been busy doing other things and I'm not on top of the literature. But you may be familiar with the, um, uh, the, America, uh, the, the conservative soul, mm. um, um, which I think is a very fine and fairly recent essay on conservatism. You talked about a lot of our institutions are classically liberal institutions in Australia, but we also have uh, somewhat socialist, if you could call it that, institutions. And these institutions, you could be argued, have been passed down from generation to generation. Do you think that there is a conservative argument to be made to protect um, somewhat socialist institutions, like the welfare state or um, socialist principles like uh, a distinct form of egalitarianism and solidarity? I've heard the argument, and I think up to a point it works, but... I would draw a distinction between institutions which are essentially constitutional Mm -hmm. and institutions which are, let us say, uh, utilities or uh, faculties that are are built to deliver a set of public policies. Um, And I think institutions like that, which are essentially of an administrative character, um, can always be improved. So I wouldn't put institutions like Medicare, for example, uh, on, on the same basis as, for example, the Constitution. Mm. I mean, Medicare exists because governments now, both persuasions, initially the Labor Party and since 1996, the Coalition, have um, embraced the proposition um, of um, public provision of 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 healthcare, um, and a system which guarantee, which ensures that, um, largely funded from the budget. Now, that's a policy choice. The structures that support it are administrative arrangements, mm. and I think in a sort of amorphous conceptual way, you might say the egalitarian tradition is part of the Australian way of life, which I think it is, mm. and that conserving that is something conservatives want to do. I understand that argument, but I was particularly thinking about institutions when I made the observation I made uh, a little while ago, and I don't think that utilities are the same as constitutional structures. They're subordinate. I think they're well. I think they're conceptually different, right? What do you think was your proudest achievement 
in your tenure as Attorney General? Um, I think the two things that the two outcomes that I put the most effort into were the suite of national security laws that um, we passed. And although it was finally passed a few months after I'd left Parliament, the, the bill in particular that I spent a lot of time working on in 2017 and was introduced at the end of 2017 to deal with foreign interference, um, which uh, was conceptually a, a, a real um, quantum leap in our understanding of how we protected Australian democracy and which is now being copied by other like-minded countries, including the United Kingdom, the foreign interference laws, which I spent a lot of 2017 um, in a very hands-on way developing. So in that area of policy, um, I'm proud of that. Another very different area in which I was very involved in the debate and had a great deal of um, engagement with was marriage equality, um, which I was a bit of a late convert to actually, but uh, having thought very carefully about it, decided that um, that was the right philosophical and policy choice. Um, and uh, the, the bill that was introduced ultimately as a private senator's bill um, was the culmination of some years of effort. Moving on from, say, your time as a Attorney General then to as High Commissioner at United Kingdom, you were obviously there when you were in the country. There was a lot of intense debate and quite a lot of tumultuous political situation involving um, Britain leaving the, the European Union. From, say, an Australian perspective as well, um, do you believe that position is, say, um, say potentially good for England or sort of good for the United Kingdom? And it's got potential there to improve its relationship with Australia. Well, um, I was an agnostic about Brexit at the time it happened in 2016. Um, I watched the debate. Almost all the smart people I knew thought it was a terrible idea. Um, having lived in the United Kingdom for four years, I have absolutely no doubt it was the right decision for the British people to have made because the whole direction of the European Union was for greater political integration. The slogan or the, the words chosen were ever closer union, which basically meant there was no end point at which the, the European nations didn't become more and more integrated into one body politic, macro body politic, and, and, and less there are separate nations. Now, that was never going to work for the United Kingdom. That was never going to work for the United Kingdom. And um, what they signed on for in 1973 was a customs union. If the EU had remained a customs union, then I don't think this debate would even have been happening. But when the European project evolved from being a project about economic in and, and commercial integration to a project about political integration, and it came to represent an existential um, threat to British nationhood, that, I think, is the point at which British public opinion shifted. Um, 
Now, does it provide greater opportunities for Australia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is manifest because of we now have a free trade agreement, or at least we're about to. I mean, my, my, apart from dealing with AUKUS and other things, one of my biggest projects when I was the High Commissioner was to deliver the free trade agreement. When Malcolm Turnbull asked me to be the High Commissioner, that was sort of the task, that was the KPI he gave me. He said, I'm pointing you because I want somebody who's politically experienced to, to deliver a free trade agreement. And so that's what I devoted a lot of my time to. And um, that was signed last December. So already we are seeing the fruits of that. And um, your parents' generation will remember the sense of betrayal in the early 1970s when Britain, which had been the biggest market for Australian um, uh, agricultural producers, shut its doors to Australian agriculture. Um, That has been reversed. As a result of the free trade agreement, Um, After a transition period in relation to a couple of very sensitive commodities, our um, producers will have unlimited access to the UK market. So that's a very important um, change, which only Brexit was only possible because of Brexit. Um, I guess this not a gotcha question at all, but... Is there anything that you regret that you did? Any points of regret in your political career? A decision that you made that you think was not the right decision, reflecting back on it? Well, you always... I mean, you make... Sometimes you make dozens of decisions a day, Mm. uh, including, um, you know, most of them relatively small. So... N- nobody would poss- could possibly say that you know there aren't things that they wouldn't have done differently, um, but I think I got the big calls right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry that we didn't get the reforms to Section 18C through, but that was never going to happen because the the debate was sort of overtaken by uh, a, a sort of it, it became sort of a proxy debate for you know were you. Uh, are you or are you not against racism? Which was never what it was about. It was about sort of the the meaning of a few words that could have been that could have caught a common ambition to stop um, abusive, racially abusive speech. Could have described the boundary line between that and freedom of speech more accurately. But so I'm sorry that we didn't reform Section 18C. But I think that was politically uh, for that reason. Um, in the in the bounds of the um, in the bounds of the impossible at the time, um, the real regret I have is that I didn't keep a diary. <laughs> <laughs> you could have got a good publishing contract out of that. <laughs> yeah. um, though um, I did occasionally take notes of um, of some um, interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. I guess we just have say three more questions if you have the time. <laughs> um, is quite a big question. Um, what do you think is um, the biggest threat that Australia faces in the coming decades? I think the biggest threat we face is the, the real possibility of a war because of, of, of Chinese belligerence towards Taiwan and Chinese um, 
um, defiance of uh, public international law and the law of the sea in the East and South China Sea, um, it, uh, if, our, if our region, the Indo-Pacific, descends into war, then we're not the most immediately at-risk nation. I mean, the, the, the South Koreans, the Japanese are extremely fearful of this. Mm. Uh, but of course it will affect us. That's the thing I would worry most about. Mm. Um, you also talk, obviously, very approvingly of um, reading political theory and philosophy. So what's the value, do you think, of a general degree like PPE? Because in recent years, I feel as though there's been a lot of assaults on the humanities and that, um, you know, the classic question that I've been asked in the past is, what are you going to do with that? with a degree like that and I'm kind of stumped by that question. So what is the value of a generalist degree? Well, <laughs> you shouldn't be stumped by the question because, I mean, universities are not just vocational institutions mm. in the first place. I mean, it's the purpose of a university to educate people's minds, not just train people uh, for a profession or an occupation. Now, that's a quite an old-fashioned view, but it's a view I hold to rigidly. Secondly, generalist degrees have the quality that specialist degrees don't. That is, they are very adaptable. And adaptability, um, at, a, at a time when people will sometimes go through several careers, um, increasingly go through several careers, is a high value in itself. And what, um, thirdly, um, a humanities degree gives you a frame of reference and a frame of values mm. that mere simply train, being trained in the, um, in, the, in the rules and practices of a profession doesn't necessarily give you. I, mean, I, I did three degrees. I did, I did an arts degree with honours in, in, in politics. I did a law degree and then I did a postgraduate law degree. Um, I found my arts degree and the distillation of my thinking, particularly about liberalism, uh, which was the subject of my honours thesis, the far and away the most useful of the three, three degrees I did in a vocational sense. Yeah. And that's not just because I chose to be a politician. Right. And I'll say our big last question, which is, say, is one we off, we've asked all our guests kind of on who we have on the show, is if anyone's listening, if you could recommend a book for them, essentially, that they should go out and buy and read... And you had to go and recommend one that was usually sometimes you just have to say to a guest it isn't is it can't be one of your own, but um, recommend one book. What would that be and why? Well, mindful of the sort of people who I apprehend will be listening to this podcast, I tell you, um, I won't recommend a book, but I'll recommend an author. Get your hands on anything written by Sir Isaiah Berlin, and. If you want a particular volume, go out and buy yourself a copy of Four Essays on Liberty. Done. Very good choice. All right. Um, so now, Professor George Brandis, um, thank you very much for coming on Pillar Talk, the podcast of the uh, University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. Uh, it was great fun, uh, great, very insightful um, chatting with you today. And for our listeners, um, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pillar Talk. 
Pillar Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is co-produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by Isaac Haynes. To our student listeners, I hope you've been enjoying the summer break. If you found yourself missing some intellectual stimulation since the end of the semester, Pillar Talk has got you covered. We'll be releasing several episodes over the coming weeks as we work through a backlog of unreleased content, so make sure to tune in. In the meantime, if you're eager for more thought-provoking content on international affairs, national security and many topics besides, you can read what students have to say in Statecraft magazine, or consider writing for us yourself. As well as references, this episode description contains links to two articles that touch on issues from this podcast, namely an opinion piece regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a journalistic interview with George Brannis's colleague, Professor Hugh White, on what the rise of China means for Australia's national security. And please remember, for extended articles and print-exclusive content, you can also buy a print copy of Statecraft Issue 5 for just 15 bucks. That's all for now. Catch you next episode.